Those of you staying here, we're going to Daniel 5. Daniel 5. As the folk will distribute notes, Daniel chapter 5. Daniel 5. While we're turning into Daniel chapter 5, let's do a little bit of historical study on some words and phrases to see where did these common phrases we use today, where did they come from? There's a phrase that goes that, that says, close but no cigar. Anybody have an idea of the origin of it? Close but no cigar. What's that? Castro? <laughs> what it came from, came from carnival games like at Coney Island and elsewhere, that what they used to give is the cigars as the prize for the game. Uh, and so they would say, okay, close, but you still don't get a cigar. And it became to be that whole idea of getting, getting into something but not, not winning it. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. You use it all the time, right? Down south, right? No, well, they would say, I can't even mock the, uh, the southern accent this morning. That comes from an idea that if you were given, and they used to do this, they would give in the nobility. They would give horses between one another, and they would, the idea was, okay, you, tell, you can tell the condition of the horse, you can tell the condition, the age of the horse, all that, by looking at the teeth. But if you've been given a gift... Don't go checking it out if it's good or bad right in front of the person. Uh, and so they came to be that phrase, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Here's one that's uh, paying through the nose. It did not develop through the IRS. Okay, it developed through a different, different thing. It comes from Viking Norseman uh, folklore. Now what they said that years ago is that if people did not pay their taxes or pay up payment, what they would do is they would cut them from the tip of their nose all the way through towards their earlobe and give them this scar and mark that they weren't paying. So the idea is you're paying through your nose the idea that you are really in debt and uh, having to pay big time prices. Deadline comes from the Civil War era. Did you ever hear this before? Civil War, they put a line. It's used at, um, what's the most infamous? Um, Andersonville? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, they put a line, and it was, it was so many feet away from the edge, and if you cross this line, you would you get shot in the head. And so it became this dead line. Don't cross this line, otherwise something tragic or, or it's going to be you know, fatal to those prisoners. And they said that that picked up in the America, Americana of that era, that it became the dead line. Here's one for you. Once in a blue moon. Any clue where it came from? What's that? <laughs> Jackie Gleason. Okay, we're going. Cuba, Jackie Gleason. Okay. <laughs> I think so. I think it probably came from Jackie Gleason and the Honeymooners. Uh, I don't know. What they just say it's something infrequent. It's usually dealing with the, two, two, uh, the month with the two moons. Here's one. To bite the bullet has to do with war. Okay. The pain. What would they do? Bite the bullet during the surgeries and when they were, and usually how were the surgeries in warfare? No answer that, yeah. And so they use that British soldiers in particular. Rud Rudyard Clip Kipling uh, made this a famous phrase in some of his writings about how they would do the surgery and the, and the soldiers would bite on the bullet. Uh, to pull your leg. You're pulling my leg. This is the one that, remember Let Nava was a missionary from a pastor down in Porter uh, in the Philippines. Remember he was speaking down in Washington, D.C.? was sitting next to a woman, and the woman said to him when they were talking at the banquet, you're pulling my leg, and he jumped up from the table and said, woman, I haven't touched you. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a phrase that they used uh, there in the Philippines that he was familiar with. It comes from a uh, British area, area that in London when there was a lot of crime and activity that thieves would come up and they would basically tackle somebody and pull their leg out from underneath them so that they could pickpocket or, or steal whatever their belongings were and it came to be the idea that you're, you know, you're taking advantage of somebody. Here's one, a white elephant gift. It comes from India. Yeah, comes from India. Uh, elephants in India, white elephants in particular, were a very, very, very special type of a gift. So if I wanted to really, really show favor, and if I could afford it, I would give those individuals that, that I really highly valued, I could give them 
this white elephant, which would be a, a, a display of great honor and you know, great friendship. Or if I wanted to, um, I, I want to strap somebody. That's the way I was going to do it. Now, if I wanted to make somebody pay a lot and weaken their, their bank account, I'd give them a white elephant. So nobility, what they would do is they would give this at times, not to their favorite people, but somebody that they knew that this was a sacred animal, very costly to keep. Therefore, if I really, really didn't like you, I could give you several white elephants and it would break your, bake your I'm going to double here, break your bank account through that. There's uh, the rule of thumb. Ladies, you need to remember this one, the rule of thumb. It, they say that in the Middle Ages and the 1700s it came to, uh, with that whole idea of carpenters and different individuals that they were using it as a measurement. But there's a court ruling that took place. There's a court ruling that took place in London by an individual that he made the ruling and it became very popular and became even the front page advertisement. Man, you can beat your wife with a stick as long as it doesn't exceed the thickness of your thumb. Who said, oh? Oh, you did. Okay, I thought it was one of the men that was uh, thinking, oh, okay. <laughs> and so it became an idea that the rule of thumb, the handwriting on the wall, where's it from? Okay, Daniel chapter 5. That's where we're headed for. Let's do it. Let's do Daniel chapter 5. If you're joining with us this morning because you come from one of the other classes, thank you for doing that. Thank you to those who regularly join us. I appreciate that you happen to be here this morning. We are in Daniel chapter 5. What we have talked about already, Daniel 1 is giving the whole accounts and the background that this book, which is filled with all kinds of interesting things. By the way, just to lay this out, this book, uh, you have to keep in mind, this isn't a book that's given in a chronological order of all the different chapters. We're going to see that in chapter 5, that uh, there's going to be some gaps that jump in and around. Chapter 5 actually happens after chapter 7 and 8, chronologically. But um, he's giving, for, for purpose of giving information, what he does, first of all, in the first few chapters is he gives historical stories and accounts. And then after that, then he gives a lot more of visions and dreams and prophecies. And the reason he does that is to build up that confidence to the individual saying, here's what God is doing, God is doing. Oh, by the way, here's what God would do in the future. And so when you get into chapter 1, it's giving you the background information about how Daniel was taken as a captive uh, from Jerusalem in 605. He, along with other good, uh, strong, intelligent Jewish boys, they were basically held hostage, but they were going to be employed in the battle government to be able to help uh, to govern, to guide, to direct, and so they go into this training program that is usually a three-year program to make them into one of the wise men, one of the sages that would be used in the political arena. And so chapter one talks about how Daniel gets there and they're given non-kosher food at that time, and so they trust the Lord as 16, 15, 16-year-old 16 young men that God would help them if they eat only the porridge. <coughs> the vegetables, and that God would help them look better than the others. It happens. He, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they excel. They've got, gotten to be a, a three men of, a four men of great reputation, and they're excelling above all the other young men from throughout the provinces. Daniel, then, in chapter 2, he is summoned by the king after all the wise men uh, could not interpret the king's dream. Daniel he gets the interpretation, he gets the dream, he goes to the king, and he interprets it and he tells of future events and worldwide empires. Then chapter 3, we jump forward about 15 years, and in chapter 3 you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're involved in government. All the government leaders are called there to the city of Babylon. We're outside the city. Nebuchadnezzar builds this humongous statue, either of his God or of himself, this 90-foot statue, it's of gold, they're worshiping it, they refuse, they get thrown in the fiery furnace, and God rescues them. And for the Jewish individuals sitting there and listening to these accounts, living in that land, thinking God has forsaken them, they, they understand this by hearing all this, God has not. God is blessing, and we remain faithful. God will bless us like he's doing these three young men. Then the stories go into the, the empire, the leader, Nebuchadnezzar, and it deals with his pride. 
that he is so proud and so arrogant. Though he is warned already that he's, this is going to happen, he has another dream, he, wise men can't interpret, Daniel comes and interprets for it and says, you know, you're going to be laid low because of your pride, you know, better, you better change your ways, and as a result, he doesn't. He doesn't listen. A year later, 12 months, it says go by, and all of a sudden he's out there one day and he's boastful and proud about what he's done, and he becomes like an animal for seven years. And the point at the end of chapter 4 is God raises up, God sets down, and God needs to be glorified and do not become proud. Interesting how it flows right into chapter 5. Chapter 5, we're advanced now about uh, two decades or more, and it's no longer mentioning Nebuchadnezzar. We read in the first verse of Daniel chapter 5 about Belshazzar. All of a sudden, we get introduced to a new king. No explanation, no information, but this new king has the same problem as Nebuchadnezzar. It's pride. It's pride, and he is going to be humbled. And so in chapter 5, all of a sudden, what we do is we read about this guy. First question we should be asking is, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Who is Belshazzar? And there's a lot of problems with this chapter by those who criticize the book of Daniel. This is one of the chapters that they will attack, and they will say, and if you go online, if you do some, uh, some reading, you're going to find a lot of negative comments that come out of this chapter that's based on history, that to say that this is not credible. It's because Belshazzar has, uh, is an individual that they didn't know about for hi in history, in uh, archaeological writings and all those different uh, collections of ancient documents. He wasn't found out. He wasn't discovered. He wasn't verified, according to the scientists and the scholars, for a number of years. Now, let's set the scene. About 20 years have passed between chapters 4 and 5. In this setting, okay, the, remember that this is not a chronological history that I already mentioned, that chapter 7 and chapter 8 actually occur before, the, uh, before some of the events that happen in chapter 5. But that's okay. That's because it's not written to be a historical treatise the way you and I as Americans, we want everything put down in a historical chronological event. But this is written to the Jews of that time, the first audience, and they are being told that uh, through these accounts that God is still in control. That was Nebuchadnezzar's statement. If you go back to chapter 4, read the last verse. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the empire, and he comes, this pagan guy, this Gentile guy, comes to a point, he says, God is in control. And so the Jewish people reading this story who are in captivity, they need to re be reminded of this. They need to be reminded that God sets up, God takes down whoever he wants. Now, you're, you're a Jew, you're taken in captivity, and you're wondering, why did this happen to us? Well, this is a theme that runs through the book. God elevates God, uh, God takes down. And so it's a reminder that God can put these empires, these impossible situations, when you're in captivity, God can turn it on a switch. God can change things. And so it's a very important thought that these individuals need. And that idea that through the stories of Daniel, through the stories of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, the Jews need to be, be, need to be reminded, do not give up your faith. Remain faithful and watch how God will bless faithfulness. Very important for those individuals who feel like, that, like they're, they've been forsaken, who feel like God has given up on them, and yet they forget that the reason they're in captivity is not God's fault, it's their fault because of their idolatry, because of what their ancestors have done. And so they're being reminded by these, uh, these illustrations, by these stories, by the statements made that God has recorded by even a Gentile king that these statements about how God is so great, so mighty, so majestic, so sovereignly in control. And so we go back to that idea of Belshazzar. I mentioned that he was, he was an unknown in history. And there's another statement that comes out of this story that throws people. If we remember the story that the king is, uh, has a dream, and this king cannot get the interpretation of it, and he is saying whoever can interpret it, that they're going to be rewarded. And so he talks about it. Go down to verse 7. He says that if you can interpret my dream, he says, you shall be clothed with scarlet, a chain of gold about your neck. And what else is he going to give to them? The third ruler. That was, a, that, that was a real stumbling block to a lot of Bible scholars. I say that tongue-in-cheek. That these individuals were saying, what do you mean a third ruler? 
this must be a historical uh, inaccuracy, therefore you can't trust your Bible. And there's a couple of the events that happened in this chapter, and this is one of the major ones. Well, then what happened historically, for years the people were saying it's not, you know, who's Belshazzar? All of a sudden, <clears throat> they found writings that were uncovered, no surprise to you, because you already know that God's Word is inspired. You know that everything in it is true, and it's not a matter of whether it can be proven, it's whether, whether historical documents will just catch up to Scripture. Well, here's from the Encyclopedia Britannica, an article from one of its most recent online publications that in the middle of the 1800s, even though it was being criticized and it was being suspect, all of a sudden they found some documents that indicated there was a Belshazzar. And it told some of who he was and what his background was. And it explained clearly what is meant in Daniel chapter 5, verse 7 about the third ruler. And so again, it's just history catching up with the scriptures. So, so let's set the scene. Let's give it a little, just real quick some history. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4 had been ruling, he rules a total of 43 years. He dies in 562 B.C. Okay, then what happens, he's succeeded by his son, whose name is Evil Merodach, okay, and he, he rules for two years. He's not a strong ruler, he's a weak ruler. And what happens after that, his brother-in-law, Nerogleser, comes in and kills him and takes over the kingdom. He rules for four years. After Nerogleser, his son, his name is Labishi Marduk, and by the way, there's some similarities in some of these names because they're variations of the ancient god uh, Marduk. And so they take the names or they get that sound of it because he's the chief god of Babylon is Marduk. And so Labishi Marduk succeeds him. He only reigns two months, two months, and then he's taken out of, off the scene. And what happens is Nabonidus, who becomes the main figure for a period of time. Nabonidus had married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. And so he, on the throne now is Labashai Marduk. He's very weak. The empire is in chaos throughout the leadership. Nabonidus is a general. He's a conqueror. He's aggressive. What he does is he takes over. He, he kills this Labashai uh, Marduk, and he takes over, and he rules for a number of years. The problem with Nabonidus is Nabonidus is... Uh, a very devout man, devout to a different god than Marduk. And so what he wants to introduce into the kingdom is a new form of worship to a god that's the name is Sin or Sin. And so he wants to introduce this moon god worship. Well, he's introducing a worship system that would totally change, radically uh, shift a lot of the different scenarios of worship that take place for generations now through Nebuchadnezzar's reign and all the way up to that point. And so he wants to introduce this one singular god by the name of Sin or Sin, however it's pronounced in the ancient language. And um, if he takes and introduces this new god, it's going to affect one of the most powerful classes in that government. Do you know who I'm talking about? In a lot of these ancient governments, who would be a powerful, powerful class? Okay. The wise men. And actually, the wise men are religious individuals. Okay? So it's the, it's the temple business. It's the, uh, in the Jewish culture, were their religious leaders very influential in their overall culture? Right? Okay. In the New Testament, who's the ones that are really changing, the, affecting the culture? Pharisees and... Right, okay. So when you, you see the Jews did that. In the Babylonian culture, it's not any different, except for they have the pagan priests. Well, those priests, they controlled a lot of the money. They controlled a lot of the influence. A lot of them were wise men who were in key political positions and ruling and reigning. So if he introduces this reform that gets rid of their God, they are going to be out of... Yeah, because... You know, they're not in favor of this. So they come up with a plan. History tells us that they came up with a plan to occupy Nabonidus, give him monies to continue some of his warfare, to continue some of because he's a general. He's an aggressor. He wants to be out fighting rather than sitting in the palace confines and governing. You know how some different people are like that, okay? He wants to be working with his hands. 
rather than me administrating. And so working with his hands is going out. So they fund his warfare projects, and they provide that. By funding them, uh, his warfare, they're basically doing what? Getting him out of the capital. Get him away from the capital, and then what happens? Who's ruling? Who's reigning? They are, but they also reign with his son, who is not in favor of changing the religious political scenario as it is. His son's name is, anybody want to take a guess at it? Belshazzar is his son. And so what they did is they came up with a spot, with a plan that not only funded his warfare, but when he was out of not engaging in battle, they set up a secondary capital. It's called Tima. It's 500 miles away from Babylon. And there he could have his court and he wouldn't feel under the pressure of having to administrate. And so they presented this to him. It was very appealing. He didn't want to administrate. His son's going to take care of it. And they basically did what? got him out of the way. That's what they did. And so politics worked that kind of way. And so Belshazzar ends up being co-regent. And so he, in, in political um, logistics, number one is Nabonidus. Number two is Belshazzar. So when Belshazzar, who is the real acting emperor at this time in all reality, when he says, if you interpret my dream, I'm going to make you what ruler? third ruler. That explains it. Okay. And again, history didn't, didn't catch up to the Bible for a number of years, but even since that mid-1800s when they found Belshazzar's name and then all of a sudden did more research, then everything came to be clear and more and more documents, writings are being uncovered as time goes by. Therefore, all of this makes even more sense because then they found out about Tima, they found out about Nabonidus' yeah, plans to introduce a new god, which, by the way, it might explain a lot of what happens in chapter 5. So, uh, the third ruler, we've got that under uh, mentioned, uh, as well as Belshazzar's name. And, and uh, understand, Belshazzar's name was not found in any historical documents. Nobody had it except for the Bible, and the Bible had it listed several times. So that made the Bible suspect until all this uncovering. So what happens is Daniel 5 is going to talk about Belshazzar's last days. Nabonidus' last days as well, and tell us about the collapse of Babylon, which at that time was the world's biggest, most important city in that whole Mediterranean region, the world that affected the Jews. We know from history that this is the year 539, okay, and what happens here is that the city collapses. Now, we're getting close to a very important date. Remember, the Jews have gone into captivity. The first time they were attacked was 605. And they were told they were going to be in captivity for how many years? Okay, so 70 years in captivity. Now, the city of Jerusalem survived up until 586. But let's start with that first year of, uh, of prediction that says you're going to go into captivity. Some of them did 605. You're going to be in captivity for 70 years, God said in the book of Jeremiah. So what year we got to get to? 536. 536, and the indication was you're going to be in captivity for 70 years and then you're going to be released. Are we getting close to it now? Okay, this is very important, and, I, and you say, well, I don't really care about the dates. You need to in order to understand Daniel. You need to understand what is happening is the geopolitical events that take place explain and help you in interpreting the Bible of, uh, in the book of Daniel. So we're getting close to that time period, and for the Jews that are living in this time period, this is really exciting that all of a sudden Babylon falls. Because if Babylon falls, who's the one that put them into captivity? It was Babylon. And so if Babylon falls, what might happen to the Jews? They might get, yeah, hey, this, they could either be wiped out or they might fall into favor of the new empire. And so it's really, really important what happens. If we put the dates together, let's say Daniel is 15 years of age when he went into captivity. We're jumping now. We're, we're talking that Daniel is in his 80s. Okay, so Daniel is not a young man. He's not a young guy when he goes in the lion's den. All these events that happen now, he's probably in his mid-80s right close to this time. And so what happens historically, and again, it lays out the, the features before we get into all the context, is the last few years there's been a new empire that here a couple decades ago, it was, it was really nothing. It, was, it, was a, it would be like, you know, um, give me a really weak country. A modern country, really weak. Uh, that, that's... I mean, you would not expect them to threaten anybody. 
Siri has, Siri's got the... Okay. Um, okay. I'll pick a really weak country that can bar barely do anything. Okay, let's pick Portugal. Because Portugal is being bailed out all the time by the EU. They can't handle their own economy. What army they have... Okay. You ask those who worked in Portugal, what army they have is kind of like a... Yeah, it's a joke. Okay, and so they, uh, it's like a police force, yeah. And so they are going to launch war and take over all of Europe. And most of the European countries would go, yeah. So let, let's say Portugal was going to stand up against Germany in World War II. Okay, and you'd go, yeah, right. Okay, that's Medo-Persia against Babylon. Is that setting? And in a matter of just 10, 15 years, everything shifted. All of a sudden there's this, and with that in mind, we often, you know, we live in our period. We don't see what's happening in the spiritual realm, but God lifts up who he wants to lift up, and what does he do? Puts down. Uh, go to chapter 4. Go to chapter 4 where it just, he's making these comments about how the, the Lord does, I'm going to, um, oh, this statement, I'm looking for it. 17. There you go. Thank you so much. This matter in chapter 4, verse 17, uh, Daniel is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar and says to him, to know the intent that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomsoever he wills. He sets up over it even the basis of men. The idea, I set up and I can take down. And so what happens is Medo-Persia, God is working. And God is setting up Medo-Persia. This is no surprise to you because you've already read in chapter 2 that Babylon's going to fall to a divided, a double-armed empire. And so you know that. Daniel knows that. Oh, by the way, and Daniel has already gotten his visions of chapter 7 and chapter 8 that talk about this upcoming empire that's going to take out the Babylonians. So when, ba when Daniel starts you know, being called in and being told by Belshazzar, you got to interpret my dream, Daniel's already had visions about this collapse of the Babylonian empire uh, because of the time frame that chapter 7 relates to chapter Five. And so Medo-Persia is coming in. Historically, we know that Nabonidus went out to meet them in battle and got whooped. And so Nabonidus is licking his wounds. He flees south of Babylon and, uh, and gets away from trying to be in the way of the new army that's moving in. So he's opened the door, the pathway for the Medo-Persians to go to Babylon. And they come to Babylon and they're going to besiege the city. And they're going to be there laying, laying uh, uh, claims that they're going to take over the empire, they're going to take over the rulers. But inside the city, while it's under siege, we read these words in, in chapter 5, verse 1. We read, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. You may want to put in your margin, while the city is under siege. While the city is under siege. What does that tell you about Belshazzar? Okay, it's you. You're one of the thousand lords. You and your wife are there. You're invited to the party. And so here we are. We're having the party. And outside the gates is armies of tens of thousands. What does that indicate about us? Okay, we're in trouble. <laughs> it's right. Okay. What, kind of, what, what must be our state of mind? It's one of, two, one of two possibilities here. Okay, we either think we're invincible or we think eat, drink, and be merry for... Tomorrow we die, okay? So it's one of those two. And so when we read the story, we understand it has nothing to do with eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. They're thinking, we're invincible. We don't care who's outside the gate. There's no way. We are titanic, okay? We are unsinkable. And by the way, historically, that's, that's kind of true. Babylon was that way that when you look at it, and so he has this, this, and history tells us they didn't post many guards around the city because they were so confident nobody could get into the city. To give you an idea, just so you understand the story and the context, that they thought this way because the city had been attacked early, early, early on, but not since the early days of Nebuchadnezzar. Nobody even came to the city and would ever dare threaten it because they were so big. 
They're so powerful. So for decades, they have never been attacked. There's been no problems, and it seems to them that it's not happened. It's a huge city. By ancient measurements, it's, this, it's a large, large city. The defenses around the city were absolutely incredible. There would be these two thick walls that are each higher than our ceiling here that they would have to get through, and between these two 25-foot walls, there was also another passage where they could move troops, they could move chariots. Then you go to the second wall. Outside was this moat that encircled the city that was like 85 feet. Nobody's going to get to the walls. And then around the walls they had 100 towers that were elevated even higher that they could shoot down upon the enemy, but there's no way the enemy could shoot up that far. And so this was, this, this was the invincible city of the ancient world. There's no way anybody could attack it. On top of that, the city itself, that what, what they boasted about, is they had plenty of food and water. In fact, the Euphrates River had been redirected so it went right through the center of the city. And so they would, never, they would never supposedly run out of water. They would have enough, and they claimed in their records that they had enough food in storage that they could feed everybody for 10 years. That's a really big food market. That's incredible. Okay, and so they were prepared for this, and they were restocking. This would be one of those cities, like we said, that nobody would want to attack, but the Medo-Persians came up with a plan, and the Medo-Persians came, and they said, we're going to attack, because if we can take down Babylon, we take over the empire. That's all we have to do is cut off the head, the head of gold, and then we've got the empire. Anybody know what the, what the Medo-Persians did? How they, what they, how they got into the city? It wasn't a Trojan horse. Okay, what's that? They, yeah, they rerouted the river so that the water went down, and then what they did is they waded in underneath the gates that went down into the water. They were able to get troops in because they were able to walk on the, on the bottom because they had diverted, and nobody noticed. They did this in a, in a really fast pace. They got it uh, re, uh, diverted, and they went in, and then once they got troops inside, they were able to open the gates, and then that was the end of it all in one evening in a matter of hours. It was amazing. And so while the party is going on, and they're celebrating, and they're having this, this, you know, this whole fiasco, all of a sudden, there's going to be the handwriting on the wall. And so when we start reading part of the account, it is really interesting what happens, that it says, and watch how the writer wants you and me to catch some facts here. In verses 2 and 3, it says, Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the gold-silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of where? Okay, which temple are we talking about? The Jewish temple, okay, the one that Solomon had built that had been destroyed in 586. But in their first in invasion, in their second invasion, and then in 586, they had already plundered the temple even before that point. And so they had taken out of the temple, which is in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink of those vessels. So table of showbread vessels, you name it, they're going to, uh, they're going to be using them for their own personal benefits. Then they brought, and watch how he states it a second time in a matter of two sentences. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and the princes and his wives and his concubines drank in them. Why is the author, why does God have the author state the same thing you know, in two different ways, but state it twice back to back? Is the author stuttering? What's that? He's giving us the reason. And it's almost as if the author is wanting you and I to make sure we understand that the reason they're going to fall is because they took, they took the things out of the temple and they started using them for personal use. They took the things out of the temple and started using them for personal use. It's that emphasis that is trying to get you and me to understand this was considered what in the mind of God? Okay. Yeah, put whatever word you want in there. Was God offended by this? Oh man, highly offended, highly offended by what they did. Now what happens is keep in mind, now this is very important I think in understanding it. This is on the heels of what happened just a few years before that. Nebuchadnezzar had fallen into insanity, became like an animal for seven years. When Nebuchadnezzar had been in there, he made this declaration. Go back to chapter 4, verse 37. Just before chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor who? The king of heaven, all whose works are truth, his ways are judgment, and those that walk in pride, he will what? 
He's able to obey. So, okay, he's just made this declaration. The king of heaven, let's give glory to the king. Who's he talking about? Okay, the Old Testament name. Yahweh Jehovah. Okay, who does Babylon worship? Marduk. Who's, who's in competition right now through Nabonidus? Sin or seen. And so he is, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, had made it clear, all these other gods that we have worshipped, they are not like the king of heaven. That's very important to keep in mind that what happens, and if you remember what he had said a chapter before that, go back a little bit. Go back to chapter 3. This is, this is really important. This is a decree that Nebuchadnezzar had made. Look at chapter 3, verse 29. This is in the episode of the fiery furnace. I make a decree... I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speaks anything amiss against who? The God of who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What God are we talking about? Jehovah Yahweh. Okay. I make this decree. If you say anything amiss against this God, you shall be cut in pieces. Your house shall become an outhouse. Okay. Because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Okay, this, this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is Nebuchadnezzar who had elevated Jehovah God. And he had told his people, no anti-Jewish sentiments. You know, no, no anti-Semitism. If you do, if you, if you become anti-Semitic, you're going to die. So there's no Holocaust. There's, there's no prejudice here. We are going to make sure that we extol, we honor, and we be careful what we say about Jehovah God. Now his grandson... What's his grandson doing? In the palace. Okay, right? Do you understand the setting? Okay, why weren't those, te why weren't those temple instruments already available for party time? They weren't supposed... Even Nebuchadnezzar had put them in a safe spot. Out of respect for who? Okay, Daniel's God. Daniel, but more important, Daniel's God. And so Nebuchadnezzar had made this his decree. And what's interesting is there's a statement in chapter, uh, chapter 5. Jump all the way down into the story. When Daniel finally comes in and Daniel talks to Belshazzar, look what he says to him in verse 22. And you, his son, okay, actually we know that the actual relationship was his grandson, okay? But can you call, can you call a descendant son? Sure. Okay, so it's not a contradiction. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. What's the next phrase? Though you knew all this stuff. You knew all this stuff. If you read the previous verses, he, Daniel takes him back and says, do you remember what Grandpa said? Do you remember what the great king, Nebuchadnezzar, had said? and what happened to him, and that he had decreed this, and he had declared this. Do you, you know that. You understand that. You knew this. In other words, you heard the stories of Grandpa. And now, here you are, and what are you doing? Okay? You are, you are blaspheming the God of gods, and you know it. You know what you're doing. So if we set the scene for the story then that helps us to understand exactly what's going on, okay? Instead of jumping in and reading it too quickly. So he has this big party. There's a thousand lords. Understand that in an ancient world, if you're having this big feast, in other, uh, number one, if you're in warfare, if your main army is out in battle uh, with your dad leading it, why are all your lords in Babylon, okay? And why are you party, you know, partying hardy here? Makes no sense. If you were really concerned about the kingdom, what would these lords be doing? They're going to be fighting. They're going to be defending. They're going to be administrating. They're going to be doing things. And by the way, in ancient empires, typically you wouldn't bring your wives to it. Okay? You might bring somebody else, but it's not your wife. Do they have ladies here? Yeah, and they bring them. This becomes probably, this party becomes more of an orgy. And it's a, it's a pretty decadent situation, that what, what happens, where there's a lot of drinking, there's a lot of womanizing, and so the conclusion is that this is, this is really... Now, now, understand the reason that we're saying all this, 
Because what is the most heinous thing that happens in this party? They drink and they party out of the temple vessels, and in the midst of this party, what's going on? All kinds of decadence. So this is really, really an attack against the Lord. And we'll show you later on. It'll probably have to be next week now because I'm so slow here. But um, what, what it, we'll show you from, from what the prophets said later on that the reason that they were destroyed is because of their irreverence towards the temple. And so what you have here is these enemies are out there. What we know about these people is this, they're very indulgent. That's this group of a thousand. We know that they're extremely indifferent. They're indifferent to the threat around them. They're under attack and they really don't care. Okay, so that gives you an idea about the leadership of the government, that it really wasn't concerned about the people, it was concerned about partying. Um, sounds very similar to a New Testament character. Do you remember the New Testament character that really was all about partying and womanizing? And Herod, the great, who does what? Takes off whose head? John the Baptist, because of... The, the, the party and the dancing by his stepdaughter that makes him to make a commitment to take off John's head even though he fears it. Uh, but it's all about partying. Okay, and so they're very indifferent to truth. And I think this is really, really important. That Belshazzar knows a lot of information about Jehovah and he has that information, but uh, he's lifted up in pride, he's lifted up in ignorance, and uh, he's going to be judged by God because of what he does against Jehovah God. And again, many historians think that this whole celebration is a celebration that has to do with uh, elevating the god Marduk, and part of that being what has happened even with Nabonidus and all those types of things. So they gathered the temple vessels that were captured. We've already mentioned they had been kept somewhere else, and so they're going to de desecrate God's name through all this, and uh, it's made clear it came from the temple of God. So this is really an attack attack on all the other gods, including Jehovah God, that, that this happens. And so there's the mixture, and, and it says very clearly in the text, in chapters 2 and 3, that are in verse 4, excuse me, verse 4, they drank the wine and they praised who? The gods of the gold, silver, etc., etc., etc. So this is, they know better. They know better, and this is all about worshiping their gods in their things. So uh, that's the setting of this. That's very, very critical for us understanding. So that's judgment defied. They had been warned. He, had know, he knows what happened to Grandpa, that when Grandpa got lifted up and Grandpa said, we, we need to give glory to the King of Kings, to the King of all the gods. If we don't, we're going to be in trouble. Now, two generations later, Belshazzar is doing exactly what Grandpa told him not to do, and so he's defying the judgment. What happens now is judgment's declared on him. While the party is going on, in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote it. The king's countenance was changed. It's interesting how he responds to this, that all of a sudden these fingers, and maybe this is that fingers of God that even wrote the Ten Commandments, there's that mention um, that, that happened, and it's a visible sight. Everybody sees this. Some, say, some commentators say, well, only Belshazzar saw it. No, no, no. They bring in the wise men. They see it. Daniel sees it, that this writing is on the wall. How long it lasts, we don't know. But it's there. It's visible to other individuals. But we hear about the king's response. The king in the middle of this party, he sobers up quickly. Okay? All of a sudden, he's this tragedy, this crisis, this handwriting. And let, let's be honest. If all of a sudden, while we were sitting here, a finger started writing on the wall, and we saw a hand, that would really get our attention. Most of us would respond by going, okay. So what's the king do? It gives us several of his responses. His countenance changes. What's that mean? I mean, you, you, got, you, got, you know the stuff. What's it mean his countenance changes? Okay, he's got sober, okay. And instead of ha, 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 okay. And not only his countenance changes, but it talks about he goes weak probably weak in the loins where he soils himself and weak in the knees where he collapses. So, I mean, he is, he's physically moved, <laughs> okay. And so the author wants us to get a sense of how impacting this is, you know, that he collapses, soils himself, the whole business, that, you know, that he's there. So we, we get the impression that all of a sudden Belshazzar, he, um, 
he is, he's, God's got his attention. Okay, fingers on the wall, got his attention. And so he's, uh, he's an individual that's just kind of shocked by this whole thing. And he's not the only one because the text talks about how everybody is moved. And it says that in verse 9, the king was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed the second time it says it. And his lords are also, everybody's astonished. Everybody's caught off guard by what happens. And so he does what has happened every other time when there's been some type of revelation. They can't figure it out. Nebuchadnezzar did it twice. Call for the wise men. Call for the wise men. The wise men all come running in, and what do they do? <laughs> what do the wise men do? We read about, okay, we read the, the king. Now look at verse 7. Get, get the scenario. Put yourself there. You're listening. You're watching. The, the king calls to bring the astrologers. No, 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 no. What does your Bible say? He cried out loud. Okay, again, all these little nuances are telling us that the king, this, was, this wasn't like, okay, well, let's, well, let's check with the advisors when we get around to it. We'll just, we'll text them later. No, no, no. This is, there's an urgency here. Get the wise men, get the wise men. So the wise men come running in and says, the king says unto the wise men, Whosoever shall read this writing, show me in the interpretation, shall be clothed with scarlet, chain of gold, shall be the third ruler. Is there a sense of what? Panic? Okay, okay. I mean, you're ready to give away your kingdom. You're ready to give away a lot. It means you have been moved. Okay, you, it's got your attention. And so he is saying, wise men, tell me, tell me, tell me. And you and I are not surprised by this. It says, then came in all the wise men, and they could not read the writing. Doesn't this sound like deja vu all over again? The wise men come, and what are they? Not wise. <laughs> so they got this job interpreting dreams, and so far they struck out the first time. They struck out the second time. This is the third time. What happens? Okay, they're out. Okay, they struck out again the third time. And so if you're a Jewish person reading this story, living in this story, what is this telling you? Okay? Our God, you know, he, 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 he just makes the wise appear. Doesn't this sound like the New Testament? The wise things become foolish in the eyes, you know, in, in the way that things work. And so what happens is the wise men come and he promises all this. The queen mother, and we're not, you know, as you read it, it's like, did somebody go get her? But it's interesting, verse 10, the way it unfolds. The queen mother, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the, <clears throat> some think it's by the words that they called for her. Others think that when it talks about by reason of the words is she heard the commotion. And she's hearing all of it, and she comes a-running. And she's, you know, she's, news is spreading quickly through the palace. I bet you this goes faster than a text message through the palace. Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think terror? You know, like, this is like call, crying what in a crowded theater. Yeah. And she comes in, and so it, the queen, and many again think it's the queen mother at this point, that comes in by reason of the words of the king and the lords. She spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble you. Let not, yeah. In other words, calm down. Son, calm down. That's easy for her to say. Okay. But she says, calm down. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king, I say your father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, soothsayers. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of the doubts were found in this Daniel, whom your king, the king had called Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called. Um, what is her impression of Daniel? From what she said, what do you, what do you glean from that? She respects this guy. Does she think Daniel is a, is a quality guy? Oh, absolutely. Does she think that he's a gifted guy? Absolutely. It's probably if she's the mother, if she's his mother, in other words, her dad was Nebuchadnezzar, she saw seven years of dad. Right? She saw what happened. She heard her own dad make comments. And so she, she lived through some of that. And she is saying to him, get this Daniel. Now the question is, where's Daniel? 
The question is, is what happened to him, okay, and she talks to this man. Um, what possibilities are there? Okay, he's jailed? Okay, that could be a possibility. Probably he's in his mid-80s, right? What happens, do you think, about this time? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a late night party. So that's, there's some real, that is probably true. That's probably true. This is, this is an all night party going on. You know, and Daniel wouldn't be there. Daniel probably went to bed at a reasonable hour, like about six o'clock, um, and he's sleeping. But, uh, but as far as positionally, he's probably, the way it sounds, he's been, because she's got she's to tell this guy about Daniel. He's probably been retired. And would that surprise you? Okay, why not? Remember, Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel were like this. Okay? What, how many people have we gone through as leaders already? Like four? Okay? So what usually happens when there's a change of leadership? Everybody gets changed. Okay, right? And so Daniel's probably been put into retirement, but... It is interesting when you go back and you read in chapter 7 and 8, he's around, he's still getting visions, and he's gotten visions a couple years before this that he's been talking and having those visions. But, but when he comes in, this is interesting, look at the verse. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said to Daniel, what do you have? Do you have a question in your Bible? Yes, no? Okay, what's that? Yeah, yeah, the, the English, the King James English reads, Are you Daniel, which art the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Jew, Jewry? In other words, he doesn't recognize Daniel. So there's probably been, Daniel's probably been off the scene. Okay, and it's really interesting, he calls Daniel by what name? He calls him by his Jewish name. And he brings up his Jewish past. Why is he talking about you? His, his mom just told him about all the great things Daniel has done. And what does he almost describe Daniel as? Captive? Prisoner? Is there a hint of skepticism here about the Jewish God? that my mom's been talking about how you have all this greatness, but you're just a captive. You're just a Jew. Or is he just simply, I'm going to really identify. But he doesn't use every other time when Nebuchadnezzar's talking about and to Daniel, what name did Nebuchadnezzar use? Belteshazzar. Now all of a sudden he just calls him Daniel. And by the way, when he, they were talking about him, his mom identified Daniel as Belteshazzar. So is there a hint in Belshazzar that he mocked Jehovah God, he mocked him, and now he's doing a little bit of a mockery against Jehovah's prophet? It doesn't bode well for Belshazzar, does it? It only gets worse that night. Let's stop. Let's get ready for worship.